Hi, everybody. This is Reeve Hamilton from the Texas Tribune, and you are about to hear a special live tribcast we recorded at the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival on September 21st. It features a number of special guests, from reporters like Maggie Haberman and Dave Weigel to state representatives like Donna Howard and Jason Vialba. And we also had a live band, so the first thing you'll hear is a song from Austin's own Jason Roberts Band. Enjoy. You talk, 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 and don't bring truth. I'm listening politely to, but I don't believe a word you say. I hear you talking, telling lies. I can see them in those great big eyes. Well, I hear you talking wise, but I don't believe a word you say. Tribcast. I am Reeve Hamilton. I'll be your host. Joining me is Ben Philpot of KUT. Hello. And let's call up our first panel. We have Emily Ramshaw, the editor of the Texas Tribune, and Jim Henson of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Obviously, all four of us have been at the Texas Tribune Festival all weekend, going to every panel that we possibly could. There's no other way we would spend our weekend. There I were think. no naps, no naps at all this weekend. Uh, so maybe right. we could start with the first event of the festival, which was the live stream of the debate between Greg Abbott and Wendy Davis, who listeners might know are both running for governor of I've Texas. I've heard that, yes. Uh, how'd that go, Jim? Who won? <laughs> who won? You, you knew I'd love that question, didn't yeah. you? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think nobody won clearly in terms of the conventional terms of a debate going into this where Wendy Davis really needed to get something out of this and Greg Abbott really needed to not have anything happen. You know, the the newspaper headline I saw the next day was something like candidates share different views of government by default. <laughs> <laughs> by default, that that's, headline? Yeah, that's worst good. headline ever. <laughs> by default, that was, you know, not a win for Wendy Davis. Mm-hmm. She absolutely needed him to stumble. You know, looking at the poll numbers, where she is right now, you know, a good debate for her would have been one where he said anything that would have put, you know, anybody back in their seats a little bit, and that didn't happen. But I also just thought she looked 
not comfortable. She looked scripted. I mean, I thought really it was a polar opposite to how she appeared at the Tribune Festival on stage with, you know, Evan Smith, who was asking her hard questions. She was actually making some sound policy decisions. You know, it it just felt like a totally different Wendy Davis. It sounded like they had prepared some pretty good one-liners and zingers for her, and Mm -hmm. she really wanted to hit her, you know, sort of prepared remarks right on. And so she seems sort of focused on getting every syllable out in a way that came across as perhaps robotic. Robotic. Yeah. Well, you know, this is interesting, though. I, I listened to the debate. I'm with radio, right? So I didn't watch the debate. I, uh, I didn't think that she came off as stiff as people that watched the debate. And it wasn't until later on that night that somebody told me that she had her hands folded together with a pen sticking up in the middle <laughs> and did not move them the entire night. And that would absolutely put a different spin on it than when you just heard her talk, you know. Well, the pen would have fallen over if she had moved her hands. Well, you know, I mean, Greg Abbott is not the most uh, uh, unstiff speaker in the world either. And so, uh, you know, listening to the two of them, you didn't really get a sense that she was that much more stiff. But but I can see, I mean, you know, I've seen pictures now, video now, and obviously she came off differently. The great stiff debate of 2014. (laughs) Right. Although I actually thought he seemed less stiff than he had been in previous debates. I actually think that he's gone through really good debate prep. He seemed very sort of calm. Normally he does this thing where he talks really deep into the microphone. And he was back, and he was sort of sitting back and relaxed. I think we're supposed to be doing that right now. We're supposed to be right up. We're supposed to be talking into the mics. (laughs) My best robotic attempt. You need to sound like that all the time, Right. But he seemed he seemed like he'd gone through a lot of debate prep to really seem calm, whereas she seemed like she'd gone through a lot of d- debate prep and seemed robotic. But what about the what about the content of the discussion, though? I mean, he he had a chance there to was ask content? her. He had a, he had a chance to ask her a question about her time as governor, and he took that opportunity to ask her, "Are you ashamed of voting for Obama?" And yeah. she didn't answer, which do, which I just you know she did answer it actually the next day. No, but why should she have of all the questions to ask? I mean, like, oh, I well. It's, pretty easy one to answer. I said this, though, uh, earlier when we were uh, having lunch. I thought she missed an opportunity to knock a punch. Not a punch that would have necessarily changed, you know, what we assume is going to happen in November. But, uh, you know, he was asking that question in the one part of the state where, and you have the numbers better than I do, what, 65, 70 percent of the people in that part of the state voted for President Obama. So she could have very easily turned it and said, are you asking me if I regret it? The 70% of the people in the Rio Rio Grande Valley that voted for him, the 200,000 people in the Rio Grande Valley, I just made that number up, by the way, that have uh, health insurance because You're giving Jim heartburn, I think. Well, the the numbers. The 200,000 people that have health care because of the Affordable Care Act, are you asking them if they regret it? I mean, I think she could have pulled policies and and popularity within that valley and said are you asking me or, you know you're going to go around the next 3 days ask them what they if they regret that he was elected well now it actually has spent the next few days in the valley i believe yeah, I mean, but she didn't say that. It's you know, it's it's West Wing, right? I mean, you know, if we all had time to sit down and script it out, we'd sound better. Well, the fact that we're sitting here discussing this almost inter- almost entirely in terms of style points is a sign that this this discussion is exactly where the Abbott campaign wants it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually, you've written about a lot that, about this for the Tribune. You know, this campaign has become so much about biography, and it's good for Greg Abbott when the conversation is about biography because it means it's not about, you know, uh, school finance, for example, or it's not about the recent court cases that he's lost in Texas. The conversation is about biography, which for everybody, you know, on the Republican side is is good right now. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question you ask, Reeve. You know, Thank why you. wasn't there more of a, <laughs> a policy response? But I mean, I think in terms of campaign strategy, it's it's you know, if you go back a month ago, and this is the, the piece that Emily's referring to, things were kind of breaking in a way that looked like, at least on paper, they were there were issues coming out of the courts, especially that broke by and large to the advantage of the Abbott campaign, and they've just not been able to take advantage of it. Well, uh, we've stunned him into silence. Yeah, no, I can't believe it. I <laughs> it can't rarely believe. happens. Yeah, I do it to him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Though, I mean, the, really the one takeaway, I mean, the sort of the YouTube clip that is now out there that Abbott is raising money on is this moment when she asked him a question and then he responded and then she tried to rebut that question and the moderator started shouting her down. How big of a problem is that for her? How big of a victory sort of 
an uh, uh, unanticipated win is that for Abbott, especially when it turns out later on we found out that that was the moderator's error, not hers. Right. Greg Abbott was in his uh, – he was given an opportunity to rebut and didn't. And so then when she did, it looked like suddenly there had been this big snafu in the debate process. It became like a, a blip of a headline, although you saw it a lot on social media, Republicans calling it you know, a meltdown. If that's a meltdown, Republicans haven't seen a lot of meltdowns. Uh, I've been <laughs> – They should you know, hang out at the Ramshaw house. Yeah, right. <laughs> Come to my household. Right. Somebody uh, get David Hartstein yeah. on the line. Yeah, right. So we'll remind him of this later. Uh, but, you know, I just thought that was sort of a, a non-conversation. Uh, and again, it just was this sort of silly – it became not about right. the substance of the debate. It became about, who, you know, who was noisy or who cut off a moderator. No, it's in the past. It's like, you know, the hunt for Red October. It's basically you just keep launching countermeasures, mm-hmm. you know, it's so that the, the torpedoes just whiz off into the water somewhere. Well, and so then the meltdown thing is completely that. No, wait a minute. Who's Sean Connery then? I don't. <laughs> I missed the. So that we don't spend too much time talking uh, talking about a non conversation that was held two days ago. <laughs> uh, well, do we, uh, I have one quick? Do okay. we think that anything happened in this debate that will make someone back out of the next one? No, not at all. I do, I do think she had an opportunity with this, sorry to keep talking about this, but with this Q&A format to really ask him a tough question that might have set him back a little. I mean, she could have asked him the big abortion question, which is, you know, under this existing, under House Bill 2, this legislation, the procedure that I had to have would not have been authorized. You know, are you saying I made the wrong, wrong choice? I think there was an opportunity to ask a really tough question there that we didn't see. I do think... I think- my maybe my favorite moment of the debate was speaking of tough questions was when Abbott was asked if Texas was strong enough on capital punishment. <laughs> it's like, and he was like, uh, <laughs> "Not sure how we can I get think, much stronger." Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, I plan to introduce legislation to bring back the rope. You know, yeah. What are you, you going to do? <laughs> I mean, that's well, we'll, we'll fix then. that comment and post. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so was there anything? So that was the first segment. That was like sort of the pre-game of the Tribune Festival. Uh, was did any other conversations happen in the last forty-eight hours that maybe moved the needle a bit more or a bit more substantive? Not on the gubernatorial race necessarily, but just generally. I, you know, I think the Texas Tribune Festival was a triumph, but I, I don't. <laughs> we paid I, him to say but that. I, but I, but I don't think. But I don't think you know there were any big earthquakes that I saw come out of this. I mean, I think, you know, really to me, and we were talking about this beforehand, I won't go on and on, but in, in, you know, the arc of the festival though, the, the discussions about policy, the discussions about politics, I think the interesting thing that you're really looking at is where the, where the state sits at the end of the Texas era. And it was really an interesting contrast with the interview with governor Perry this morning, where he basically kind of dropped the mic and said, I'm done. You know, all done here where... He's know, accomplished everything he wants to accomplish. Yeah, and transportation is still, you know, we've moved the ball on transportation, but clearly still a lot to do. And the Tribune Festival, you know, panel after panel was about lots of indeterminacy in these policy areas that are very important in a state that has grown by over 5 million people since Rick Perry started the governorship. And we're seeing, he's not going to be around, I think, for the fruition of a lot of things that kind of started during his period. And we saw a lot of that at the festival, I think. I think there were a lot also kind of like one of the panel that I had, which was the people essentially saying, we are trying to figure out how to do this on our own because we have no idea if or when we'll ever get help from the legislature and, and what they may pass in the next session. So they're they're trying to come up with essentially workarounds to the legislature. I think there were some interesting nuggets of news over the course of the weekend. I think you had, you know, John Cornyn basically come in and say, I don't think my colleagues in the Senate should be throwing tantrums. And he was asked if he was speaking about Cruz, and he said, well, him and others. You know, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty, du- pretty tough direct. zinger for Cruise your plus. colleague. Right, exactly. Uh, you had Wendy Davis in her appearance with Evan Smith saying that she would uh, if she were elected governor, she would uh, sign an executive order to expand Medicaid in Texas. That was something a little farther on the policy spectrum that we hadn't heard. Oh, there was, you know, last year there was some big news made when Anita Perry sort of had some very nuanced comments around abortion at the Tribune Festival. This year, State Representative Donna Dukes, who's been in the legislature for a long time, uh, in an, a panel on women's health, said that she had, had previously had an abortion coming on the heels of obviously Wendy Davis's book a couple of weeks ago. So I think there were some headlines. Again, nothing that was earth-shattering, but but definitely news was made this well, weekend. Well, I would encourage people to really go through and read. We have all the panels were live blogged on our site, and a lot of them have sort of sort of not quite news nuggets, but just little interesting things in there. I know one of the panels I 
was on um, Dr. Garcia, the president of UT Brownsville, proposed having um, Pell Grants tied to work study and changing the Section 8 housing rules so that they could convert dorms to Section 8 housing. Just like little interesting proposals like that that don't get turned into headlines but are sort of woven throughout the panels, I think. But this panel specifically, I'm afraid, has come to an end. So maybe... (laughs) Uh, we could Did we make it. any news? We hardly knew. It was, a, yeah. it, was, it was a conversation about nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Four Let's people see. shared their ideas. That will be the headline. <laughs> the so, Seinfeld trip cast. Yeah, thank you to Jim and Emily. And now let's hear a little bit more from the Jason Roberts Band. Oh, thank you, folks. As Rhea Reeve mentioned earlier, we do have a brand spanking new CD entitled That's My Home, so we'll just go ahead and play the title track. Say how do you do? 
right. Thank you again to the Jason Roberts Band. I think you can catch them at the Broken Spoke on October 17th yeah. if you're in town. Uh, ben is back joining Hello. me. We'd like to call up to the stage Maggie Haverman from Politico and Dave Weigel, uh, who is currently an unemployed gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> Formerly of Slate, uh, tomorrow he'll be a Bloomberg, but for the moment he's just a guy here on the TribCast <laughs> with us. So I guess he, he's writing writing about uh, progressive rock, something that's filling your un- unemployed day. That too, that and dancing for quarters. So thank you for giving me something to do today. <laughs> um, so you guys, you guys were there for the the, or well, you've been here for a few days, but you watched the Perry panel this morning, I believe. Uh, and I think you've both written a lot about our governor. Over the years. Uh, yeah. What, he, he declined to say that he was running for president, but what would you say is sort of next, the next chapter for him based on his tone today? Uh, I, I thought that he made a very valiant uh, effort to not say anything, either about uh, the indictment that he's facing or about uh, 2016. And I think that he gave... Uh, I think Evan Smith did his very best to to get him to say something. Uh, he said that he would decide at some point next year. Um, I, I have little doubt that unless something really surprising happens with this this legal issue, uh, that he will run for president again because he uh, this would be his last chance to do it. And I think he genuinely feels uh, bad about his 2012 run, which I think I described on our panel this morning as as epically bad, uh, which I didn't remember saying, but I saw on Twitter a couple times. Um, uh, So so my takeaway is the same. My takeaway is he is is still running. Um, But I I do think that it's not totally clear how this legal issue plays into it. I mean, he's he's working it for publicity very effectively right now, but at the end of the day, it's still an indictment. Well, and that's something that's been, I think, interesting to watch uh, have, have you noticed or have you felt a sort of a different a difference in the way that the national press has approached the indictment versus how the Texas press has approached the indictment? Because the Texas press feels like there's a difference. Evan Smith has said multiple yes. times, I think, on TribCast and just with whoever will talk to him, yes. uh, that, yeah, he feels that the national <laughs> press is completely lost on this. I, I, have, I have read that um, <laughs> a, couple of, a couple of places. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh, yes, I think there is a difference, and I think that um, the difference is that the, the Texas press has focused on the substance of the case, and I think that the national press has done much less of that. I think the national press, uh, I, and I, I'm, I am pretty sure I can cop to being among them uh, at, at, at least one time, has either uh, mischaracterized what the indictment is about or misunderstood what the case was about um, and and watched sort of the swagger with which Perry addressed it yeah. afterwards, uh, and and that was the main takeaway. I mean, I'd be curious more what Dave thinks of it, honestly. Yeah, well, I'm also an East Coast elitist, and definitely <laughs> exactly. I spent the, that the the day when it was announced reading up on it, and I I wrote a little bit, and I felt like I understood it. But if you're covering 2016, which is still amorphous and still defined by Republicans living in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, I if, if you just look at the way they interpret it. Right. They see this as another extra extra legal yet legal attack on somebody they kind of right. like. It's the way that they eventually interpreted uh, some of Christie's problems. It's the way some of them interpreted Tom DeLay's problems. And there, I noticed there were more cheers. DeLay was kind of a discredited figure when he went down. He was seen as one of these Republicans who made the party big spending and unconservative. After he was vindicated, I remember seeing National Review and, and Breitbart and all these sites just war whoops that they that he defeated the liberals again. I feel like that just if you're covering the Republican primary, that was what was important. They just assume it is an unfair attack like the attacks on Dinesh D'Souza. I always see it in those kind of litanies. You'll hear Rush Limbaugh talk and say, right. there must be something to all these legal challenges. Let's not look into what they are. There's just got to be some, some grand... Uh, Eric Holder-led attack on the guys we like. Well, I think Perry made uh, a real smart choice in, I mean, I know that some of these events were already planned, but, you know, the indictment came down and he left town. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's in Iowa. He does the thing there. And, you know, the local press comes up to him afterwards and he gives the line that we've all heard now. Well, this is, you know, I'm a governor. I should have the right to veto. This is a liberal attack, blah, blah, blah. And the local press doesn't know. And it's on the news that night. And then all the voters in Iowa see that, Perry is being attacked by the you know liberal judge, and that's all they know. To to, to that point, actually, um, some of the perceptions of this uh, is not is not just that um, Republicans have said they think that this is an overreach. There have been some Democrats who initially looked at it.
it, and I think did very little reading about what right. was actually uh, the substance of the indictment, but said this looks really thin. Among them, David Axelrod, a right. former senior advisor to President Obama. Um, a couple of liberal commentators did the same thing. And so you have from and two then, sides. And then developing. Perry pulls that into his message right. to the local right. media in New Hampshire or Iowa exactly. that, well, even uh, Democrats think this is a stupid thing. and. At, at and it's the, just hard. At the end of the day, you have two sets of facts. You have uh, Rick Perry has an indictment, and we'll see how that right. plays through the process. And you have that a recent poll, and we talked about this on our panel, showed Rick Perry at, I think, 5% in the caucuses in Iowa. Now, obviously, the caucuses are not being held today, but he did run before. So it's not like name ID is really his issue. Um, he has work to do. Uh, whether he can he can turn this into something that helps him in that process remains to be seen. He certainly used uh, the border crisis issue, and I, he has done that to good sort of media cacophony effect too. But he still is going to have to reintroduce himself uh, in a state where there are pretty hardened perceptions of him. Before this indictment, how is that re- reintroduction going? It seemed like you know he's got the new glasses, he's, right. he's <laughs> making the <laughs> rounds. It seemed like he was sort of had some momentum going, though. Well, the five percent five percent was after he'd been to Iowa right. a lot of times. Yes. I mean, I remember being in Iowa for other things and just noticing that had I got up on the highway and driven straight for a hundred miles, right. then he was he was at some county breakfast. He was meeting the same people. Uh, they just the problem with twenty sixteen for someone like him, or when you hear uh, a discussion about Mitt Romney too, which is very much I think still mostly a Beltway Boston uh, creation. Uh, what they forget is that the, the-, the thinking in 2012 was that our best our best people aren't ready yet. They're all like freshmen in high school. We need to draft them when they're ju- when they're juniors or seniors. And he his bigger problem is that they're really people are more excited in Iowa when they meet this crop of about half a dozen up and comers like like not so much Scott Walker yet, but like Jindal who no one no one never mentions like Cruz when he gets there. Um, I mean it's. Not to, comp- to be too glib of the comparison, but it's sort of what happened to Hillary Clinton once Barack Obama arrived. Right. I mean, he, I'm borrowing something that Glenn Thrush wrote about Joe Biden, but he got, he got, to, the right, he got to the top of the ladder, and then someone moved the ladder. That's I think that's sort of what happened true. to Perry. Well, and, and Perry's uh, evangelical base that he tries to tap into, obviously in these states, uh, they backed someone else in the Iowa caucus, uh, mm-hmm. Rick Santorum, who is also probably running again, and who also didn't have kind of a flame out mm-hmm. uh, to maybe embarrass the people that voted for him the first time. So if if Santorum shows up again, he might be a safe. Uh, they might feel he was a safe landing spot as opposed to flipping to Perry. There's well, a it, lot of yeah. There's a lot of places where where evangelical voters can go. There's a lot of places where the different swaths of Iowa caucus voters can go. I mean, just to your Rick Santorum point, though, and to how diffuse this is right now, Rick Santorum is getting less bounce out of his caucuses win in the last cycle than Mike Huckabee is getting from his two cycles ago, which (laughs) I I find remarkable, but is the case. When they add Huckabee to a caucus poll, he goes to the top immediately. People still really love him there personally. The way that Santorum was the best they could get. He was like the methadone (laughs) of Huckabee. Yeah. Hasn't Perry been trying to run away, or not run away, but sort of awkwardly transition away from that evangelical base a little bit? He had that thing where he said he didn't want to talk about social issues after he had talked about social issues and gotten in trouble for that. I, I, I don't know if it's so much turning away from the base or just turning away from a very difficult, dicey area. And frankly, in fairness to Perry, he's not the only Republican who's trying not to talk about social issues, um, at least in, in an extensive way, and certainly not the only governor. That is not, you're seeing, and this has now been written many times this cycle, but Democrats are are focusing on this uh, very heavily, and Republicans are trying to steer away from it and talk about the economy or talk about other issues. So Perry, Perry sort of fits in that mold, as far as I can tell. Well, Dave, you mentioned Cruz. Obviously, he is the other person who declined to uh, announce for his presidential bid this weekend here at the Tribune Festival. Uh, how is his star faring? Is he rising, falling, just shining brightly in one spot? I think the problem is something that, that Evan pointed out a couple of times, which is that there will be a bunch of governors, and the people who are bunched up in the Senate fighting for various things are going to have to di- differentiate themselves and come to Iowa without any tangible achievement. The most when, when Cruz talks about what he's achieved, I've, I've seen him give a, I think it was a six or seven point Iowa speech. Actually, what I remember about the speech is that Cruz was counting to seven, <laughs> and he said three, and then the next point he said he said four, he said three again, and said I'm sorry. I got the number wrong. I just don't want to say oops. 
<laughs> and Perry was on stage like five minutes later. <laughs> but, but anyway, no, when he mentions that, all he can point to is like one specific bill that barred or, or ran from appointing one specific person to be an ambassador. He's not going to have many achievements. It's to the degree to which people want uh, a, a, a good advocate for their causes who fought Obama on a lot of points. And frankly, you can say, well, Barack Obama didn't have a lot of achievements. He had more. I mean, Obama went out of his way to team up with Republicans in 2005 and six, which is really when he was in the Senate. And just, I, I, it doesn't seem like it matters, but you'd see these campaign ads where various Republicans said, oh yeah, he helped me pass this, this, this bill in Illinois. He passed, helped me pass this nuclear weapon uh, safety bill, things like that. Cruz isn't going to have that. Um, I think he might be a little bit overrated now for that reason because they're just the, the rest of the guys haven't come to Iowa to flirt quite yet. But he is making all the moves. I mean, I think his next travel plans that are firmed up are all in states that are in, the, in that first cluster of, of uh, primaries. Does it feel like – it seems like when he, uh, when he first got there, obviously he had the, the whatever filibuster. Um, mm-hmm. But he uh, – uh, before the Republican primary uh, here in Texas, it seemed like a lot of Republicans were uh, um, trying to stay out of his way. Uh, if mm-hmm. he said, we need to do this, they weren't necessarily interested in contradicting him. Uh, specifically, John Cornyn was kind of very silent on how he thought Cruz was operating within the Senate. Once Senator Cornyn won his Republican primary, he's, as, as Emily was saying in the yeah. previous panel, he's, he's come out more aggressive against Cruz uh, maybe not allowed Cruz to make as much noise in the Senate. Do you see that covering Washington? Mm, yeah, there's more. There's more confidence. I think a lot of the leadership guys, Cornyn first among them, McConnell too. I guess the, McConnell more. McConnell's supposed to win. He's more. He 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 he. He will, he will probably win, but he has more of a fight than Cornyn does. They think they've sorted this out in this primary season. They think they beat everyone who is an irritant, who could have ruined a Senate race, who could have blown something for them. And I think they're a bit overconfident about, about it, frankly, because the, when these guys... The, I said this in the, in, the, in the panel earlier, but the worst-case scenario for Republicans, they really, if, they, if they botch it in a bunch of close races, they'll still win a bunch of seats this year. And I think the, the base is going to say, after all that you did to, to crush us, after all you said this shutdown was going to destroy the party... We won anyway. If they win, say, seven seats and they control the Senate, they're going to demand more. Uh, and Cornyn will, is one of the guys who's ready to, to carry that ball. It doesn't matter. Sorry, sorry. If Cruz is one of those guys ready, ready to carry that ball, it doesn't, it, it doesn't quite matter if Cornyn wants to dismiss him because Cruz depends right. on That's media right. coverage right. and activism more than he depends on anything that Senate rules can, can, can control. Right. There, there is still a sense, I think, that uh, the, the, the other side of the point that Dave is making, and I totally agree, um, there is an overreading, I think, on the part of the establishment about how much power they have taken back from, from the base, from conservative activists, because of basically doing what incumbents should do, which is be prepared and, you know, uh, be ready to run a real race as opposed to just sort of sleepwalking through it, yeah. right? I mean, it's not just that you have establishment versus Tea Party, and this is necessarily just some ideological battle. In some cases, that's the case. But in a lot of cases, there's a combination of factors that went into this. Um, it does not mean that you're going to see a diminished or deflated Tea Party base or conservative base or activist base for 2016. I think the opposite. And going back to the point about how many candidates uh the base has to choose from it's a lot going into 2016 well i'm getting to the other side of the equation i guess is it, we've talked about cruz and perry but is it possible that we might see a castro brother i guess specifically julian working in the white house before we see either of those other two gentlemen you know i think i think that there's very good chances we will see a castro on the democratic ticket um <laughs> i mean we we talked about this at length this morning i'm um, i think i think dave and i are in agreement that hillary clinton is the the um very dominant front runner, um, and it is not the same as 2008, uh, where she was dominant until she wasn't dominant. Uh, I think she's just dominant this time. Her the poll numbers are much higher, and I can't see somebody who could put together the Obama coalition of voters against her the same way. And so, and and I do think that Castro would be very appealing to her um, if she is the nominee as a vice presidential nominee. But I am I am unwilling to say that she is a cakewalk for the White House in a general election. I think she has a tough fight. Well, the state Democratic Party would be happy to say that because they've already got buttons that say uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Clinton-Castro ah, okay, uh, 2016. So there, yeah. that, that's easy then. I, I, think, I think so because the, the Democratic Party's theory that of how they dominate the White House, remember, because of gerrymandering, because of where Senate races are, especially this year, it's hard for them to take back complete power. 
But if they can force elections to be fought on the turf it was in 2012 and make Texas problematic for Republicans, not even win. I mean, let's say the Clinton-Castro ticket loses Texas by seven points, and but forces Republicans to spend money. There is kind of an, a, a large amount, a pool of money that Republican candidates can draw from. But that mean, they're not going to be competing for California. They're not going to be competing for the states they used to be able to win. Right. Uh, I think that, that was what makes Castro really attractive. And then there's not another Hispanic candidate uh, who is ahead of him. But that, there's definitely, I think, a desire to, scout, to scout, for some, scout for some. And I've seen in this cycle guys who won house races and stuff right. who are probably going to be right. promoted. But Castro is definitely the head of the pack. Yeah. All, right. All right. Well, Dave Weigel, Maggie Haberman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We have one more panel coming up. But before that, let's hear from the Jason Roberts band one more time. Thanks. Folks were most likely unaware that by uh, by being uh, being here today, you were also nominated as the Texas Tribune Choir, the vocal. So we're going to get y'all to shout along with us. The boys will shout along behind me, and it'll be easy. You'll know right when to sing and what to sing. This one's called Full Five Times.
give yourselves a hand, immortalized as the Texas Tribune Choir. Thank you all. All right, thank you to the band, thank you to the choir. Let's get Ben Philpott back up here. And joining us now for our final panel, we have Representative Donna Howard and Representative Jason Vialba. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. I I want to say that uh, when I was talking with some media friends of y'all over at the... uh, Trip Fest earlier, I said, I'm a little nervous about, you know, being here and keeping up with the witty repartee of this group. And they said, well, isn't Ben Philpot going to be there? <laughs> <laughs> and, and at this point, you must be pretty comfortable. I'm very comfortable. <laughs> I just want to sing along with this band a little bit longer. That was yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. I got my vocal chops going now. We've got, I think we have to figure out a way to have a band at every Tribcast. We might get more people listening. We might know. do better on the house well, floor, too. I think, well, I think Representative Vialba just volunteered to be the house <laughs> band for the Tribcast. I'm here in. Out. Count me in. All right, so, so we, we're done after this. After this panel, and a couple more songs, I think, then we are done with the Texas Tribune Festival 2014. That means the only thing you guys really have to worry about now is the 84th legislative session, which starts <laughs> yeah. in January of 2015. Um, How's that going to go? Is it going to be uh, just easy breezy, pass a budget, go home? What are you guys expecting? <laughs> Boy, uh, I think we've got our hands full this session coming up. You know, the tenor of the Senate and the House has changed. I think you're going to see a much more conservative Senate than we've seen before, probably the most conservative Senate that we've seen in Texas probably in a generation. So I think that really shades what kind of legislation comes and originates from the Senate. And then over in the House, I think the composition is relatively the same. You won't see much change in that body. But if you listen to the remarks yesterday of Speaker Strauss, I think we're looking at a, a different type of session than we had last time. We, we called the last session the Kumbaya session, the session of the purple uh, where we all joined together and sort of got things done in an efficient manner. But I think coming up, uh, it's going to be a, a bit of a battle. Like there's going to be some controversial issues that arise. Uh, I look forward to it. You know, that's part of the conversation that we have. Um, but in the end, I know that Representative Howard and I will work together to advance the cause of uh, the great state of Texas. Wow. Yeah, we will. And we both wore our cowboy boots today. Right. So uh, that, that's requisite in the, in the legislature. Um, yeah, I, I think we all know that the House is going to be uh, a very similar structure in terms of how we're made up, I think, to, no matter how the elections go. Uh, the big change is going to be in the Senate, which, as Jason has said, is going to be much more conservative. And depending on what they do with the two-thirds rule, um, we are anticipating there could be some uh, blockage, if you will, on that side, or there could be some really ramming something through, just depending on how that goes. And contrary to what a lot of people think normally happens, in this case, the, uh, the House members are going to be the grown-ups, I think. And we're going to be wanting to focus on those issues that really affect the lives of everyday Texans, like we did in the, in the Kumbaya session of last time before we got to the summer, which was definitely well, this, not uh, the Kumbaya. The Kumbaya session sure, sure seemed to end in a pretty yeah. uh, dramatic fight. Yeah. Kumbaya but, regular session. Yeah, but, you know, part of that was, I think, the leadership of the House, which was saying, let's focus on those things that make a difference in Texans' lives. Let's focus on investing in infrastructure and making sure we're taking care of water and roads and looking at, at restoring some of the cuts anyway, to public education and higher education. Those are the things that matter. The social divisive wedge issues were not brought up during the regular session purposefully until they got brought up in the called special sessions. And, you know, I mean, certainly I would say that was for political purposes, uh, for a platform. I, I, will, I will say, though, in defense of my conservative brothers and sisters in the Republican Party, look, the people have spoken. We have moved to the right because the people of the state have, have voted that way. So the people that we are seeing newly in the Senate are, are of a much cons- more conservative tenor because the people have spoken. And so we can't just immediately disregard that and, and accept that you know we're going to push away some of these more controversial issues. Conservatives have spoken. Conservatives have won this body. And they're deserving of uh, pushing forward some legislation that they think is important. So I, I respect that and appreciate that on our side. I'll fight for conservative causes. I know it might lead to some more uh, uh, back and forth, but that's part of where we are in the state today. Until uh, folks that are differently aligned uh, on the Republican side move forward and vote en masse, I just don't think you're going to see much of a change in the way the direction we're going. Well, is there is there a... Is there any truth to the concern that some conservative business groups have even had that the um, that the legislature has become so conservative that you're you're going to see 
maybe more problems getting things like water, uh, uh, water, yeah, money for water, water, money for transportation, any of these infrastructure projects going forward. Because while yes, there was water uh, that amendment passed or the bill passed, the amendments coming up, I guess, for transportation this fall. Um, but everyone has said that's just a, a starting block. There needs to be more done. Some business groups have come out and said we're concerned that the makeup of the Senate uh, uh, will maybe lead to problems getting those more stuff, uh, more infrastructure done. It'll color the debate, no question, right? I mean, when you have the libertarian wing of the Republican Party moving forward suggesting that these kinds of issues aren't as important as some of the more controversial issues, it definitely will color that discussion. But I think in the end, uh, again, my conservative brothers and sisters on the, on the, in the Senate are focused on issues that truly matter to all Texans. And so we will get more transportation uh, done this year. We'll, we'll move forward with water. Uh, it'll be a different kind of analysis. and a different, We'll get there differently, but I think we're ultimately going to get there. Does it make it harder when there's, since we're expecting a decent amount of money to be on hand this time, does that make it harder or easier to have these discussions when there's money to be spent? I think a lot of times people say that makes it harder, um, but I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. The fact is, though, that, uh, you know, we have not fully funded a lot of our budget anyway. We, we had a panel on the TribFest about uh, transparency in the budget process, and the fact is that we do have a balanced budget, as we're required to do by our Constitution, but it's balanced on paper. And it's balanced with the reliance on, at this, in this particular budget, $4.7 billion of funds that had, were collected for one purpose but were not appropriated in order to certify and balance the budget, as well as deferring final payments, uh, pushing off the full cost of Medicaid, those kinds of things. So... You know, I, I have an issue with those that uh, want to shrink it more and say that we don't need to invest more in it when we've not even fully funded what the services are that we're supposed to be providing right now. And my concern is that even though we have more money, a lot of the talk that seems to be rising to the surface is let's give that money back. You know, we're, we're, already, uh, we're already going to be giving a, a little bit of a rate reduction in the margin tax. Uh, based on some legislation from last session, when that has never fully funded the property tax swap of 2006. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be difficult, but uh, I'm hoping that we can have some really reasonable discussion about this and actually fund what we currently have in place as well as look at how we're going to accommodate the growth of this state. And with the 140 days that we're given, we're also going to have to deal with public school finance, this sector. So we just had a, a case where it said we have a situation where our public school finance system is not uh, funded. And that's likely going to be appealed. But if we do not get there on appeal, look, we're going to have to figure out how we're going to fund our public education system. That, in addition to the issues that Representative Howard mentions, are going to be a heavy lift. Uh, for this legislative session. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, but, you know, we've got our work cut out for us. What, what about uh, one issue that came up earlier this morning uh, during the conversation that Evan Smith had with Rick Perry uh, was the the notion of in-state tuition for undocumented individuals, which seems to be sort of an interesting pressure point, maybe mostly on the conservative side, because obviously that's something that Perry signed in 2001, and then they tweaked it later and he signed it again. Um, but it's also something that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has said and has been saying for years that he would like to see done away with. I mean, is that the kind of thing that we might see rammed through in the, the new Senate, or or will that likely survive? I don't want to use the word rammed through. I think the Senate has a different perspective, or the coming Senate will have a different perspective on that issue. If you've listened to uh, Greg Abbott talk about this, he says that this uh, legislation is – is flawed, but can be amended and changed to make it more effective and applicable to where we are today. I, you heard that yesterday, all too, from as well from George P. Bush. I think there's unquestionably coming uh, some movement around that. Whether or not it completely goes away or stays is a question that we'll we'll answer in the session. I sense that there is a push to at least take it back a little bit. Um, and even though people like Governor Perry, who've supported it, and other conservatives and business groups that you mentioned are in favor of that. I think there is a, an overwhelming conservative uh, force that is moving towards the direction of, of at least cutting that back or making it tighter thresholds or, or changing it in a way that uh, is different than what it is today. Now, you went around the state talking to different Republican groups, though, about the idea of 
uh, Republicans being more open to Hispanics, Hispanic voters. Does that fall in? I mean, I would assume that that's one of those areas that you're like, look, we can have a well thought out and and just a gentle discussion on this, but we don't need to use this as something that might you know draw a wedge between us and. It's one of those issues that is very complex. When you talk to the Hispanic community about this, unquestionably people come forward and say they're in favor of, you know, tuition subsidies for the undocumented residents or the children of undocumented residents. But I can tell you the way I describe that issue is to talk about how we live in a state of limited resources. If we didn't have these limitations that we have to fully fund public education and all the other underfunded programs that we have, it might be easier to say that we can provide resources resources for undocumented, the children of undocumented residences. But I think because we have limited resources, we really do have to carefully look at uh, what we do with our, our unre- undocumented resident population. And so I've actually come out in favor of, if it were to be put to the floor, of being in favor of eliminating the program until we have resources that could be able to do it. I think the way we need to talk about it is, is in a way where we can articulate why we believe what we believe rather than making it such a divisive ish- wedge issue. Well, I have to say, you know, this limited resources thing, that that is absolutely... Uh, a decision that this state has made in terms of being uh, low taxes, limited services. We don't have to make that choice, but that has been historically what we've done. We do have choices uh, to move beyond that and actually increase the uh, resources that we have. And, And in fact, our economy is doing well right now. It's an absolutely opportune time for us to be investing in those things like making sure that our students are properly educated, that we have that educated workforce pipeline to continue uh, the economic development that we're realizing. And, you know, uh, we hear mixed things about how much we can expect this economy to continue. It's a volatile industry. But the fact is that not only uh, do we have uh, the industry thriving right now, we know that there's been uh, resources discovered in the West Texas that they're looking at how do they access those. So regardless of what happens to this particular phase of the of the industry. We know there's more on the horizon. So the fact is, Texas, for whatever reason, I know some people say it's because God loves us, but for whatever reason, Texas is blessed with abundant natural resources that has allowed us to not be a third world country, basically. Uh, and we need to take advantage of those resources and go out there and make sure that Texans have what they need to continue to be success- successful and move forward. If we don't, I find that to be the height of irresponsibility. Uh, but in, in a counter-argument, I mean, Texas is blessed, and, and we have done very well, but the Texas miracle is largely predicated on this concept that Governor Perry pushes, that we are a low-tax, low-services state, and because of that, we, have, we are the economic engine for the country, you know, the top economy, and it's because we've taken this approach that says if you earn your resources, you keep them. Right, and we are going to provide services for a safety net, but not much more than that. That's just how our forefathers in the Constitution of Texas said that we would operate, and it's really, I think, the reason we are so economically healthy uh, vis-a-vis the other 50 states like California and New York who do provide you know, a significantly larger level of services but yet aren't nearly as economically healthy as we are. Well, we, I, I'm take, sorry, I have oh, to no. say more <laughs> Y'all have gotten us going here. Uh, we are an inter- interdependent society, though, and the, the wealth and prosperity of, of any group is dependent upon the efforts of many more that contribute to that. And if we want to keep that Texas miracle alive, if we want to keep it alive, we've got to invest in those things that will help us move forward, and that means... All of that growth and all of those good things that have happened, the Texas miracle will not be a Texas miracle if we don't take care of the services and provide the services and the infrastructure to support it moving forward. So, I mean, I think we're talking the same thing to a certain extent, Jason, but mm-hmm. I think that, that, that we've got to widen our, our perspective on it. Well, well just uh, so I think that is sort of the big conversation that will be happening this <laughs> session, right? Uh, is, right it, is it possible? I mean, you mentioned the the you know, not to discount the kumbaya regular session, but obviously there was the issue of abortion that really sort of threw things off the rail in the special session. Has that issue been put to bed, or are you expecting to be fighting over further restrictions if there are any more to make in the 2015 session? And could that sort of once again distract from sort of the big fundamental issue of how to spend the resources that you're talking about right now? 
You looking at me? <laughs> you go first. Maybe one, well, I sat, one, on a, two, three. I sat on the panel at the Trip Fest where I heard some things that uh, were said by uh, a, a, a future colleague that's going to be coming in about her desire to offer more legislation to put further restrictions on access to abortion. So if, if that's a prelude of what might happen, then I think, yes, we can expect to have some of those things at least be attempted to be brought up. I think part of what happens when, when you... Uh, are in a leadership role in the House, it, which I'm not in, but from what I understand, uh, <laughs> being in the minority party. I know how you feel that, at the Tribune. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, that there are efforts to uh, manage the flow of legislation on the House floor. And uh, I think that's when, one of the reasons we had the Kumbaya session, because the leadership did a good job of managing the flow of legislation on the House floor. So we were focused on those things we need to be focused on. Whether that will happen this next time, I think, is, is part of the issue here. Can we remain focused on the kinds of things that we need to be focused on, like education and infrastructure, or will we be sidetracked? All right, and I think we largely agree. We are speaking the same language. We're both focused and motivated on what makes Texas bigger and better and stronger. But, you know, I feel a lot like Representative Howard in the sense that we've got 140 days every other year, and we have to deal with the issues that truly impact everybody in this room, water, education, transportation, those kinds of issues. And if we get bogged down with issues that are divisive or controversial, we, we spend cycles days going through issues that only affect the tiny sliver of the population. So while I'm strongly pro-life um, and voted strongly in favor of, of HB2 and, and pr- supported it, I, I think going forward, if we can focus on transportation and water and public education, I think that's better for the state than focusing on issues that may be deemed by some uh, to be more controversial. Well, I think with that, we're going to have to just say thank you to Representative Vialba and Representative Howard thank you. for joining us today. Thank, thank you, Ben, over there at the end. Hello. You were very witty, Ben. Yeah. Hi. Can, can I sit with your the band in the last <laughs> set? Here's your thing. That, that is our Tribcast. Thank you so much to everyone for coming. Thanks for coming for the Texas Tribune Festival. We are going to let the band play us out, and that is our show. Thank you so much. Say a quick uh, thank you to everybody at the Texas Tribune for having us here. We're very proud to uh, to live in Texas, what we feel to be the the greatest place in the world, and we appreciate all you guys, especially our state reps, for you know making that uh, making that so and and helping to perpetuate that. So thank you very much. And speaking of Texas, here is something uniquely Texas: the San Antonio Rose. One, two, three.
Thanks to everyone who participated in our live show, and special thanks to KUT for hosting us. As always, questions and comments can be sent to tribcast at texastribune.org. On behalf of everyone at the Tribune, this is Reeve. Thanks for listening.